Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. And just, just so folks know, I'm used to this on a regular basis, but my first name is actually Nasha, long A. That's all right. No, it's important because I always get it slaughtered since childhood. My own family still gets it wrong um, when I go back to visit my relatives in Kansas, so it's nothing personal. Um, but I always tell folks, think Echinacea. And that works. Okay. So on that note of navigating the narrative, um, part of why I even shared that about my name is it's important for you, the patient, or for you, the clinician, to stand strong in what you see to be true for yourself or for somebody else. And so part of that is when you start to learn about ways that you can change your inner dynamic, you need to do all of that you can to advocate for yourself. And so part of our job is to help empower our patients to do just that. So I feel like I could almost just get up here today and say ditto for both presentations because there's so much amazing information out there. And in fact, I feel that this presentation is is, um, already done for us thanks to Dr. Mandel and the Appendix A portion of the low-dose naltrexone book. So thank you for that because I think that that's a place as a patient you can even start right there is to get this book, read Dr. Mandel's appendix, and take that information with you to your office visits. So we've all heard this weekend about kind of the myths surrounding this. We've definitely talked ad nauseum about the uh, mechanism of action. Thank God we had people like Stephen Dixon up here, so I don't have to go into that um, for you today. And then, of course, the application and dosing has been discussed multiple times over. And at this point, I'm hoping everyone realizes it's actually quite simple. You don't have to really deviate very far from the basics here. So. Just to touch into each of these components, with the myth busting, you know, we've heard, or at least I've heard in the years, I mean, I I go way back with this medicine. I actually worked at an HIV clinic in Arizona in the 90s, and I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Bihari from the get-go. And to see and hear what he was up to, it was amazing trying to weave this therapy into an environment that was actually an integrative approach for Um, HIV and AIDS, and yet this drug was sort of poo-pooed and pushed aside, and I feel like it would have offered even more support for that population for the three years that I lived there, but I certainly learned everything I could about it and kept trying to compel the powers that be to bring it in as part of our standard of care within that environment, which today it is. Um, And so, again, the other thing is there's no research Holy cow, if you've listened at all this weekend or to the previous um, conferences on LDN, when folks say that, they simply have not opened their eyes, okay? They just simply have not pulled their head out of the sand. Um, I don't say that disrespectfully. I'm just saying that honestly. Maybe they don't have the time or the wherewithal. So one of the strategies as a patient is perhaps you take the book or take a few, like even the LDN Research Trust has the 2016 
sort of um, compendium on low-dose naltrexone, perhaps you print that off and take that in to your physician so that they don't have to spend the time hunting this down, that you can bring that in for them. The concept of this may be only a placebo. Well, who cares? Okay. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I've been at this long enough to see, um, as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, I've seen the studies of sham needles completely changing people's outcomes. When folks, the whole point of our work is to have people feel better period. Whatever means gets us there. Now, hopefully, all of you realize that placebo is not the only mechanism of action here, but so what if it's part of the deal? I'm okay with that. And then when folks say they can't prescribe it, this is a big one, because I love when people use this commentary. I mean, to use an example, off-label drug use is pretty much a given if you're a conventional medical practitioner in this country. So for instance, we'll use things like Seroquel that we've used for schizophrenia to help patients with really you know, difficult insomnia. Or um, you know, I think about some of the other medications like Namenda that we had been using for Alzheimer's. We're now using in the ADD, ADHD po population. And the crazy thing about those meds is they tend to have a pretty harsh you know, side effect profile. And most of us in integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine, functional medicine, um, have a lot of other tools that are much more helpful. And yet we're still so quick to prescribe those in our conventional environments when we could use something as safe and effective and inexpensive as low-dose naltrexone. And then my favorite, and which is actually quite rare, as most of you know, to hear someone say, I just don't know about it. That's when I go, oh, a door just opened, because that's when we have truth. That's when we have an opportunity to dialogue and to start saying, okay, well, what will it take for you to know? And how can we learn about this together? Many things I've done in practice in my lifetime are thanks to what the patients have taught me. I'm certain that everyone in this room has had that very experience, and in fact, how many of you are here today as practitioners because your patients taught you about low-dose naltrexone. Good. I love seeing a few hands in the audience because that's how I learned about a lot of the therapies that are really impacting my patients at its fullest. So I'm not going to spend much time on the mechanism of action because we've had a lot of amazing speakers who've gone into far greater detail than that. But remember these basics here. We have absolute evidence of the multiple ways that this is impacting us. Now, we initially thought it was just addressing the opiate system. And you'll see more in my next conversation that that is uh, one piece of the puzzle, perhaps just the tip of the iceberg. Um, but that I love that the conversation of the toll-like receptors have been really infused into many of our conversations this weekend, because in the field of integrative oncology, which is the swimming pool I splash around in, toll-like receptors are huge in the research right now and in the approach of addressing um, cancer from an, from an immunological and inflammatory perspective. So just a few of my favorite points to bring up about the mechanism of action are listed here. Oops, let's see, there we go. So these, again, are just the tip of the iceberg of some of the areas of research we have seen in 
the support of low-dose naltrexone for our patients. And so kind of the top three that I see a lot of in my practice, obviously oncology, um, but autoimmunity is huge. Now, I've yet to meet a cancer patient that doesn't also have an autoimmune condition. And once they've gone through treatment, if they didn't have one before, they are sure to have one now. Okay, And then, of course, the central nervous system. Again, in the field of oncology, many of the therapies we use from a conventional standpoint are very damaging to the, to the nervous system. And so I look at this medication as a general support for the type of practice that I have with patients dealing with oncology. They're dealing with autoimmune conditions. They're dealing with a dysregulated immune system. They're dealing with um, central nervous system toxicities. So why would this therapy not just be a natural extension and support for all of our conventional therapies. So I just, I just think that's quite, quite powerful. And then again, going back to my history of meeting Dr. Bihari in the first, the first moments of learning about this medication in the 90s, I only thought it was used with AIDS and HIV. And then shortly after I got into private practice in the early 2000s, I started learning about its use in, and the um, autoimmune folks. Started using it a lot with rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. And then it's just evolved. When I went full bore into oncology in 2012, this just became kind of a mainstay. And it's just been incredible to watch the progress. And I'm sure many of you in this room, the folks in the trenches using this medicine, feel this sort of excitement and the aha as we hear each other share to understand that there's so much more about this than we know or don't know. So the application, again, I'm not going to belabor this because we've talked about this a lot, but it is quite easy. Um, if you want to talk about the ultra-low dose medications that luckily we had presented earlier this week as well, that's one approach when you're working with somebody on opiates. Or if you don't go low and slow and starting folks up that have maybe autoimmune flares going on. But otherwise, the general rule of thumb is somewhere between 0.5 and 4.5 is sort of the magic happy place. And it's based on your patient's response, not your agenda. So knowing that it can take a little bit of time to build up in the system, really educate your patients to listen and learn about how their body is responding to this medication. And then I am a giant research geek like the rest of you in this room, and so I wanted to include a lot of amazing resources of which most of the people who've contributed to these resources are sitting in this room, so I'm a little bit starstruck, and sharing of their knowledge and their wisdom with all of us. So please, please, you know, access this information, share it with your colleagues, share it with your uh, support groups, share it with your doctors, share it with your friends and family if you're a patient listening to this. And then more books and websites that offer more information specific to the dosing, specific to some of these patterns we've talked about over the week are also listed here. And so in that quick wrap up of how to talk to your doctors, I want you to remember one thing. You are in charge. You are the CEO of your body. You just like you present any documentation to um, a big major corporation of how you're going to collaborate and work together, you do a little bit of your homework going in. And I advise you not to walk in and say, hey, I learned this on Dr. Google, and this is an integrative alternative therapy. Don't, because it isn't. This is a drug. This is an off-label drug use steeped in science and steeped in decades of amazing clinical experience and probably millions of 
personal empirical experiences among our peers. So thank you. Probably the most uh, overqualified warm-up for a talk ever. Uh, you just got it. Um, and so that makes my talk a little bit easier, and that's why I just have a few minutes with you. So what I want to focus on really are some uh, clinical, uh, oh, is it not? It's here, is it not? Oh, should I? Hey, goody. Okay, even better now. All right, so hello again. Hello to all of you at home listening in your pajamas. Um, just to uh, uh, preface, we pre-recorded three of my presentations. So there's a case series, uh, a thyroiditis presentation, and then one on cancer. And so that way you don't have to put up with me live that much. Uh, but I did want to just talk about MS and uh, what, what we've seen clinically with some uh, patients and get through that. So because you just heard about most of the studies, I won't pause and talk about them as I normally would. I, I picked just three to kind of take us through fairly recent times. Again, you've seen them already. Uh, the one uh, rodent study here and then two of the human ones, first one showing safety and the second one showing possibly some uh, quality of life improvement, et cetera. And, and I think the point's already been made that the, the timing uh, of naltrexone, it, it, we're still working out really. Uh, what we see, and if you go and look at the recording on the cancer um, talk that I did, what we see there is actually intermittent use uh, works better than continuous use, and so we've actually changed our cancer protocols to be intermittent use, kind of uh, possibly what we're moving towards with uh, autoimmune in, in my estimation for reasons that were already outlined. So I think that that's one thing we should probably talk about in the few minutes we have. And then um, I will just buzz through these study slides. So I think, you know, one of the nice things about collecting the studies that we're sharing with you for different categories is also if you're sharing information with other physicians who are e either having to, because it's a, you know, a HMO or a PPO or something, they have to countersign prescriptions, it, at least if they know that there's been some study, it's safe, et cetera, and then you, you appear to uh, have an idea of what you're talking about, they're more likely to, to do that for you if you have to do that. Now, most of our patients we just prescribe directly, but occasionally we will get uh, some people in a system where it, it has to be done a different way. So a few things just to kind of preface with respect to other therapies around uh, with MS. We, uh, as most of you probably do, start with diet and lifestyle adjustments. I think uh, regardless of what immunotherapies or other therapies are done, this is um, the, the ground floor that you have to keep uh, operating in patients. Uh, we tend to try and uh, remove anything that's going to be retoxifying the patient every day. That's usually not good in auto-inflammatory disease. For many of the patients, of course, we're lowering the amount of sugar that they take in, increasing plants, and, and then everything else is uh, negotiable from there. Um, usually also nutrient augmentation and again whether you know whether that's being done empirically or uh, potentially in some of the worst patients genomically speaking we, we do that with everybody uh, mentioned genomic assessments and that in in the case of the autoimmune patient there are some nutrigenomic assessments that we use that 
uh, I have found that are very helpful. Now you can do much of it um, with respect to that empirically, just based on what they appear to need, et cetera. But what we have found is in some of the auto-inflammatory uh, cases, and we'll talk a little more about this tomorrow, um, if people have imbalances, especially in histamine metabolism and some of the other inflammatory metabolites in the body, it's good to know that and try and work ahead of it. Uh, everybody pretty much is uh, screened for endocrinopathies and um, it's for uh, hopefully obvious reasons, toxicity assessment. Chronic infectious diseases in, in any of our uh, slowly responding autoimmune patients, and really probably most of them at our clinic, we're doing assessing of uh, chronic infectious disease, biofilms, things of that nature. Then a lot of redox and other, you know, some of the frequent flyer herbal and other types of therapies. Medical cannabinoids, um, just in case you're from the DEA and you're listening, as you do to me sometimes, I'm in Washington, it's legal, I can prescribe it, so don't come to my office again. All right. Uh, <laughs> good friends with my local DEA people. So. Um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, the medical cannabinoids have been extremely helpful, and you'll be hearing more about them later, so I won't steal any of Nasha or anyone else's thunder there. The other thing that I didn't put on the list, probably fear of, again, someone coming after me, is uh, we had some patients who were replicating the high-dose estriol uh, uh, augmentation in, in females, and it was never, we never did it as a, uh, monotherapy, but uh, in a couple of cases where they, we were asked to do that for the patient who was local, we did see that have an additive effect on top of the LDN and everything else that we were doing with the patient. So I think that that's just important to throw out there. I know that the that one of the multi-center studies was published on that, and it's it's worth looking into. It's something I would enter cautiously because it's a lot of est it's eight milligrams of estriol. It's a lot. So uh, dosing, as was mentioned in the prior talk, uh, the 4.5 milligram dose was chosen because it was in the middle of the dose range that was given, uh, which is great. At least we had something to start with. But what, I've say, what I would say over the years is, is that there's a lot of people that I'll get to a particular dose, and it might be two milligrams or three and they don't do well above that. And because of what we're seeing, especially with some of the data that we've compiled and seen with cancer, uh, lower indeed and pulse may be better anyway. So there's not a magic dose. The other thing that I've seen is there are some people dosing higher than you know 4 or 4.5, um, and sometimes maybe due to individual kinetics that is necessary, but we, we don't tend to do that that much. So, so this is usually the direction we go in autoimmune folks, and, and this would, you'll see this repeated in the Crohn's talk tomorrow. Um, and, and the reason just being that uh, this way, if they have aggravation or there's other things, um, it's, uh, you know, it's easier to deal with going slower. You can also do the 1.53 and 4.5, which is pretty common as well. And just as was uh, mentioned at the end of the last talk, I, I also, you know, many patients get their LDN in the morning. Uh, I take mine at night because I like the dreams, all right? I just, I enjoy my dream life and the LDN really kicks it up. So uh, uh, you should really try all the drugs that you prescribe if you can. You know, it's a, that way you know what you're talking about. 
Uh, I just want to mention this briefly, and I'll pick up tomorrow because I've got like 10 seconds, and uh, that is LDN and opiates. Um, we do have patients, because not so much with MS, but in cancer patients, we do prescribe it uh, concurrently with opiates, but we go extremely slowly. And what we find is if we go by halves, we usually find a place where there's breakthrough and where there's not. And we tell the patient up front, we have them sign a consent that they may have breakthrough pain. And if they, if they go for it, we do it and we just titrate up to the dose that works. Some people can go to 4.5, some people it's one, some people it's two, something is better than nothing, especially there. Some people there's no tolerance. And the worst case that we had with opiates with breakthrough was where the prescribing was taken away from us by the local hospital. The doctor called me from the hospital, asked me how to prescribe naltrexone to a pancreatic cancer patient on opiates, and I said, please go slowly, gave him this schedule. He called the pharmacy, he says, I know how to prescribe naltrexone. He went too fast, and the lady wound up in the hospital with breakthrough pain because he was an idiot. That's the bottom line. It was just poor clinical management. Uh, but you must disclose that there's the possibility, and many patients don't want to buy off on that possibility, but you can do it if you go extremely slowly. All right, I am out of time, but we're all going to be up here on the panel, so thank you very much. Hello, my name is Sarah Zildorf. I am a functional medicine physician and a board-certified internist at the Institute for Personal Development. I practice in Romeoville and Morris, Illinois, in the United States. This is my case study called A Patient on Fire. This is the case of a 38-year-old female. She has an impressive past medical history and many chronic medical conditions, including degenerative joint disease with progression of herniated discs, both in her lumbar and cervical spine. In 2013, she had a failed traumatic spinal surgery, which consisted of laminectomy. She then had a spinal leak and has suffered from chronic arachnoiditis and post-traumatic stress syndrome. She has seen multiple specialists, multiple neurologists and neurosurgeons. She's had multiple MRIs and procedures. She does not have underlying multiple sclerosis. She does, however, um, have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is suboptimally treated. She does see a pain specialist which has been difficult on her because her mother was addicted to pain meds. So she doesn't like to take these medications and they've been poorly, uh, poorly helpful to uh, control her pain. She has also a history of malabsorption with multiple vitamin deficiencies. She has a history of osteoporosis and she is obese and she has received disability. She had to give up being a special education teacher with poor mobility. Some definitions. Hashimoto's hypothyroidism is an autoimmune-mediated chronic lymphocytic infiltrate of the thyroid. Arachnoiditis is damage to the arachnoid mater, which causes an inflammatory process. The etiology of Hashimoto's thyroiditis is initially that the thyroid gets enlarged from inflammation followed by the resolution to a normal size. If the disease progresses, you get damage to the thyroid gland and atrophy, resulting in a loss of function and subsequent hypothyroidism. There is also an increased risk of lymphoma, which is a type of cancer. Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroid disease 
is usually associated with the production of thyroid antibodies, including TPO, thyroid peroxidase, and thyroid globulin, TG. Autoimmune thyroid disease is responsible for up to 90% of hypothyroidism worldwide. Females are affected more than males disproportionately by autoimmune thyroid disease. The number one trigger for autoimmune thyroid disease is pregnancy. All autoimmunity is a source of inflammation. The major contributor to this patient's underlying pathology, degenerative joint disease, osteoporosis, etc., is her chronic inflammation. In arachnoiditis, the acute inflammatory stage that occurs in the dura, which is the exterior, and the arachnoid mater, the interior, are two of the three membranes that cover and protect the brain, the spinal cord and the nerve roots. The arachnoid contains the cerebrospinal fluid, which circulates from the brain to the sacral area about every two hours. It filters any pathogenic invasion and usually responds first by inflammation and follows with a chronic stage, which can be a life-lasting phase, which is characterized by scarring and fibrosis. As a result, abnormal adhesion of nerve roots to the dural sac or to each other, which is clumping, can occur in a variety of configurations that significantly alter the function of the roots and spinal cord. This causes a variety of neurological deficits and severe chronic neuropathic pain, which is usually located in the area affected. In the prebiotic, pre-antibiotic era, this occurred with severe cases of tuberculosis or syphilis. Now, the most common underlying reason for arachnoiditis are neurosurgical, neurological procedures. This patient presented with many persistent hypothyroidism symptoms. She had persistent weight, which was up and down, up and down, along with a lab that showed a wildly fluctuating TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone, which indicates poorly controlled hypothyroidism. She showed the sign of her toe or Queen Anne's side, which is that the outer third of her eyebrows were persistently missing. Her labs showed low thyroglobulin antibody and negative TPO antibody. Her labs also showed poor conversion of T4 to T3. She was on a monotherapy T4 treatment of 150 milligram micrograms of levothyroxine in the United States known as Synthroid. She had a thyroid ultrasound, which showed no nodules, but a grossly heterogeneous parenchyma, which shows that the tissue has had massive destruction consistent with a longstanding history of Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. The review of her neurosurgical, neurological, and pain specialist consultation was undertaken, and it was noted that she had failed multiple surgeries and procedures and still had poorly controlled pain. Her past medical history, social history, and family history is incredibly complicated, as is most patients with autoimmune and chronic illness. She was born naturally with a vaginal delivery, but she was not breastfed. She was solely bottle-fed. It was noted that she had severe irritable bowel symptoms in childhood, including constipation and diarrhea with dairy. 
Her hypothyroid symptoms started in high school. In high school, she suffered from a severe case of Epstein-Barr virus, which is known as mononucleosis or mono. She has a strong family history of Hashimoto's and rheumatoid arthritis. Her father and paternal grandmother with Hashimoto's, all of them allergic to many, uh, many medications. And this patient was noted to have medication and anesthesia intolerance. Her father had rheumatoid arthritis and her mother had a history of colon cancer. The patient um, had negative colonoscopies, uh, but has had a history of problems with digestion, noted to have slow digestion on endoscopy, and had to have a cholecystectomy a year before presentation. She was a vegetarian from the age of 18 to 20. Uh, at that time, she had panic attacks and fainting with exercise. She also suffered from an eating disorder in which she lost 42 pounds. She also had a history of hysterectomy, had numerous DNCs and ablation, hit problems with uh, menses. She has a history of poor social support from a divorce. She grew up in a strict Catholic family. She was remarried, and this is a source of physical and emotional abuse. Um, currently struggling with courts. She is currently estranged from her family. The conventional treatments that she received were numerous. She had a history of many failed epidural procedures, facet injections, and chronic steroid injections. She saw three surgeons that questioned whether the recommendation was to go through with the spinal fusion. At the time that I saw her, she presented dependent on NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, escalating use of opiates without relief, including narco, Percocet, oxycodone, and then has been on fentanyl patches. She had a history of antidepressant use as adjuncts without relief. She used psychotherapy and had a counselor that she saw regularly. She was on chronic anxiolytic therapy with Alprazolam or Xanax. She had multiple courses of physical therapy, which had failed. She also used acupressure, chiropractic manipulation, deep tissue massage, and breathing exercises, all which did help to some degree. She had a trial of a spinal cord stimulator on January 21st of, December, of January, uh, January 21st, 2016, which failed. She was sent home an hour after the simulator was placed and in more pain than ever, taking more pain meds than ever. It was taken out after six days. The last surgeon uh, that saw her agreed that this was not fibromyalgia. And then the patient said that she felt on the lowest setting that the spinal cord stimulator was, quote, a steel-toed boot in my ribs. She did, however, have some improvement in her neuropathic burning pain. Because of all of this pain, she'd been unable to have weight-bearing exercise, which contributed to her weight and her osteoporosis issues. For low-dose naltrexone, the initial dosing that I prescribe usually is the initial Bihari protocol, which is a one and a half milligram tablet or capsule, increasing as tolerated to three milligrams and a, a level to four and a half milligram oral tablet. Some considerations for this patient. 
In June of 2016, the planned spinal fusion surgery was canceled. Of note, the patient was found to have a genetic mutation that caused her not to be able to tolerate certain anesthesia. Upon, upon speaking with her, it turned out that she had gone blind with three surgeries following induction of intubation with propofol. And when she discussed this with an anesthesiologist, they were uncomfortable using another agent and her surgery was canceled. Her surgical prognosis was poor. She remained on fentanyl patch and Norco. After an elimination diet and thyroid medication changes with some subsequent weight loss, she was able to wean fentanyl patches and her opiate medication to start low-dose naltrexone with adjunct lidocaine patches as needed. We started her on low-dose naltrexone, one and, a half, one and a half milligrams, once she was off opiates for two weeks. The initial results were very impressive. She tolerated her first month without side effects. Pain was tolerable with non-opiate and therapeutic adjuncts. During months two to six on low-dose naltrexone, the patient improved dramatically. On 8-24-2016, the patient stated, it's the first time I felt happy. At this point, she was off all other pain medications as well as her anxiety medication. She had a sustained weight loss of 60 pounds and was thus able to perform weight-bearing exercise, which dramatically has helped her osteoporosis. The first time she's been able to exercise in years. So, in addition to low-dose naltrexone, there are many adjunctive therapies which are important in the management of chronic illness. Above all, one must treat the underlying comorbidities to chronic pain. The cornerstone of therapy is an anti-inflammatory elimination diet. In this case, I used an autoimmune paleo template, which was prescribed for her underlying Hashimoto disease and chronic pain. Her underlying hypothyroidism, poor social support, chronic stress, and malabsorption profoundly underscores the patient's previously poor prognosis for back and spinal cord disease. Her thyroid was optimized with natural desiccated thyroid and leothyronine, which is the active thyroid hormone, T3. We also corrected several vitamin deficiencies, which included B12 injections of hydroxycobalamin for malabsorption of B12. In addition, genetic testing noted that she could not tolerate regular cobalamin. We also prescribed high-dose vitamin D3 with K2. The K2 was important to prevent mobilization of calcium from her bones so that she would not have further bone density loss and also prevent calcification of the artery. We also prescribed digestive enzymes, including gallbladder support as the patient had no gallbladder and has had a profound history of malabsorption, slow digestion, and other problems. There are many proposed mechanisms of action of low-dose naltrexone. Briefly, in this patient's case, low-dose naltrexone dramatically improved her thyroid in addition to the medication because the low-dose naltrexone affects the production of endorphins and enkephalins. Specifically, metenkephalins help to encode a growth factor, which can help stimulate thyroid and production of thyroid hormones, even in patients who are hypothyroid. 
In fact, some patients need to reduce their dose of thyroid medication once they are on low-dose naltrexone. It helps to reduce the autoimmunity-mediated inflammation via upregulation of the T-regulatory cells of the immune system. And therefore, patients note reduced hypothyroid response. As far as low-dose naltrexone and the patient's history of arachnoiditis, this is a powerful potential treatment for a rare condition with poor response to traditional, traditional therapy. The proposed mechanism of action is that low-dose naltrexone prevents the persistent microglia activation in the brain and spinal cord, which promotes the maladaptive response of nerves and tissue of the central nervous system. And low-dose naltrexone is a powerful adjunctive treatment for, the, for, for depression and anxiety in which chronic endorphin deficiency is corrected, among other mechanisms. In conclusion, low-dose naltrexone is an important consideration for the reduction of chronic inflammation for autoimmunity and musculoskeletal and neurological conditions. One must treat the underlying comorbidities and optimize nutrition to maximize efficacy and optimize the underlying mitochondrial function of the patient. Thank you very much. And Sarah Zielsdorf, MDMS, Functional Medicine Internist, Institute for Personal Development. And I can be reached at www.ipd.md and 630-226-9303. My name is Dr. Sarah Zielsdorf, and today I am presenting a case of rheumatoid arthritis, low-dose naltrexone, and new life. This case study discusses the case of a 26-year-old female who has rheumatoid arthritis, which was poorly controlled at her time of uh, presentation. She was on chronic methotrexate therapy, and she presented with the desire to wean off of all pharmacologic agents for rheumatoid arthritis. Her pertinent past medical history is that she grew up eating a diet of processed foods. Initially, her birth history and early childhood were uneventful. This changed around the age of 11. She was the child of divorce. This divorce was amicable, but her father was in an unhealthy relationship at one point, and she felt that he took it out on her, and she felt unloved. She describes herself as a type A child and young adult constantly working. Um, she did describe herself engaging in heavy drinking of alcohol and abuse of alcohol in college. And she was most notably involved in a long-term abusive relationship. This, in, this entailed verbal, emotional, and physical abuse. And she stated that she lived in fear long-term during this relationship. She thinks that her long-term abusive relationship in college was the trigger for her autoimmune disease. Immediately after ending this relationship, her joint stiffness and fatigue began. She does have notably a history of chronic yeast infections and a strong family history of autoimmunity with her father uh, having Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune condition. And for any autoimmune condition, there are three, three noted conditions and requirements. One, a genetic predisposition. Two, an environmental trigger. And three, intestinal permeability or the so-called leaky gut. There are several theories for the etiology of rheumatoid arthritis while there is no one elucidated uh, pathophysiology. 
and cause. However, there are several theories, including infectious mimics. Infectious agents suspected as potential triggers include the Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV, parvovirus B19, and retroviruses. Epstein-Barr, or EBV, can activate B cells to produce rheumatoid factor. And rheumatoid factor is an immunoglobulin, or IgM antiglobulin, which is present in about 70% of rheumatoid arthritis patients. Rheumatoid factor, or RF, is associated with extra-articular manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis. And it's noted that the absence of rheumatoid factor is associated with milder disease. Other noted mimics which cause reactive arthritis, similar to the joint disease in rheumatoid arthritis, includes treponema pallidum, the causative agent of syphilis, and foodborne infections, such as Yersinia enterolytica and Salmonella. Bacterial and viral components known as antigenic particles may be carried to sites of inflammation by gut-associated macrophages, further leading to imbalances in the gut microbiome. Rheumatoid arthritis and periodontal disease have similar pathophysiologic mechanisms, such as adjacent bone resorption in the susceptible host. Association with specialty periodontal bacteria as an infectious trigger including Porphyromonas gingivalis and Prevotella species, has been uh, an important theory that has come about in the most recent um, decade, and several uh, dentists are seeing this. This is as of yet unproven. Methotrexate, or MTX, is an agent, an anti-inflammatory agent used in both cancer and in uh, rheumatoid arthritis. It is contraindicated in preg- pregnancy due to it being a folic acid antagonist. Now, there are multiple mechanisms of action with methotrexate. Methotrexate affects cancer and rheumatoid arthritis by two different pathways. For cancer, methotrexate competitively inhibits dihydrofolate reductase, an enzyme that participates in tetrahydrofolate synthesis, which is active folate. Folic acid is needed for de novo synthesis of the nucleoside thymidine, which is a required, which is a requirement for DNA synthesis. Folic acid is also overall an essential precursor for purine and pyrimidine synthesis, which are the bases of DNA. So synthesis of DNA and proteins is inhibited. For rheumatoid arthritis, there are multiple mechanisms involved, including the inhibition of enzymes involved in purine metabolism. There is inhibition of T-cell activation and suppression of intercellular adhesion molecule expression by T-cells. There is also selective downregulation of B-cells. In doing so, there is inhibition of methyltransferase activity, which causes deactivation of the enzyme activity, which is relevant to immune system function. Initial findings for this patient included that she presented with severe pain in both hands, bilateral shoulder pain, and the rest of her joints, which feel bruised. Her initial labs are unremarkable other than high titers of rheumatoid factor and CCP antibodies, or cyclic citrullinated peptide antibodies. Her C-reactive protein and sedimentation rate are minimally elevated. These are markers of chronic and acute inflammation, respectively. Her pain is out of proportion to findings on physical exam. 
on labs, she does have elevated candida or yeast antibodies. And so she was treated with a combination and long-term approach of bactericidal antifungal diflucan or fluconazole and bacteriostatic agent nystatin along with natural antifungals, herbal agents. Diet and lifestyle changes with any autoimmune condition are paramount. One tenant of a functional medicine doctor or a more natural holistic physician is the fact that we never immediately discontinue a patient's medications, pharmaceutical agents. It must be a gradual process or the patient will not only flare from their disease, but may have other, other side effects and increased, increased illness. We continued her low-dose methotrexate and her folic acid and worked to optimize her vitamin D levels. We gave her an autoimmune dietary template with the first thing that we eliminated was gluten, which is a known molecular mimic of certain antibodies. And then we proposed a strict elimination diet, starting with the paleo template, which includes no legumes, dairy, grains, and sugar, and then increasing the strictness for a short period of time with an autoimmune paleo diet and also a low FODMAP approach. Autoimmune paleo further eliminates nuts, seeds, including seed spices, nightshades, which include tomatoes, all peppers, eggplant, tomatillos, nightshade spices, and eggs. And then a low FODMAP approach, which addresses SIBO. SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth to address the root causes. Sugar and starch feed SIBO and FODMAPs. These are fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, which include lactose, monosaccharides, excess fructose, and polyols, which are sugar alcohols such as sorbitol, mannitol, malitol, xylitol, and isomalt. These short-chain carbohydrates break down into fructose in the intestinal mucosa and feed commensals or less desirable bacteria in the gut. Short-chain carbohydrates are not completely absorbed in the GI tract, and these are easily fermented by gut bacteria, which can cause irritable bowel syndrome symptoms of bloating, gas, and pain. We also wanted to address the, the patient's psychological trauma. We referred her for EMDR therapy. EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, a way of recategorizing and diminishing trauma at the level of the brain. We stressed a short-term elimination diet, and this is because we do not wish to reduce oral tolerance in the patient, which is a reduction of microbial diversity in the gut, which then causes the patient to not be able to tolerate many foods. This, at this state, it is very hard to correct this imbalance. We do not attempt long-term restriction diets in the setting of chronic gut infections or the presence of dysbiotic or abnormal or imbalanced flora like the commensal bacteria. So we prescribed this loving diet template and Jessica Flanagan was the pioneer of this loving diet, which is a combination of AIP plus low SIBO plus low FODMAP diet. It's an anti-inflammatory diet, low in bacteria, starches, starches, sugars, and certain fibers. And so this included a template for her to reintroduce foods in a timely fashion. This helped with her yeast overgrowth symptoms and 
the fact that it is nightshade-free means that it could be especially helpful for her rheumatoid arthritis. Approximately one month later, the patient's joint pain was much improved. Her swelling was confined to her right middle finger and synovitis in that finger. There was no further shoulder pain, and she could clearly see the knuckles on the left thumb and fingers. In addition, for residual symptoms, we prescribed low-dose naltrexone. We dosed her using the Bihari protocol, which is compounded low-dose naltrexone at 1.5 milligram oral tablet, then 3 milligrams, and then 4.5 milligram at the highest dose. We increased her dose every two weeks as tolerated, which she did, and this was done on a nightly dosing schedule. She had no side effects. Her symptoms continued to improve. After six months of low-dose naltrexone, we weaned her methotrexate completely. She felt very well, except she attributed some residual hand stiffness to overuse as she had gone to massage school. She felt so well that she was working two jobs. We wished to do some methylation testing in the future, and we tested her folate levels to make sure they were normal, given that she was on long-term methotrexate therapy. Approximately three months later, the patient discovered that she was unexpectedly pregnant. We maintained her on 4.5 milligram low-dose naltrexone oral tablet throughout her pregnancy and postpartum period, and she did very well. There is extensive research and data on the safety of pregnancy and low-dose naltrexone, especially from Dr. Phil Boyle, and it is known that LDN is safe in pregnancy and breastfeeding. She had an uneventful pregnancy in the delivery of a full-term healthy female infant. There were no complications. However, the patient experienced severe joint pain and swelling about eight weeks postpartum, and it is known that postpartum autoimmune flares are common secondary to immune system shifts, and this is a T-helper cell-mediated event from uh, the shift in balance between Th1 and Th2 systems. The patient's rheumatoid arthritis symptoms were quickly quelled by targeted anti-inflammatory supplementation and immune system support, especially the use of large doses of omega-3 fatty acids and a specialized product using specialized pro-resolving mediators, or SPMs, which are a specialized component of omega-3 fatty acids. The proposed mechanisms of action for low-dose naltrexone and how it helps rheumatoid arthritis are several. By providing opioid antagonism, we increase the endogenous beta endorphins and metencephalins, which help the immune system and also many other factors, including the fact that it is a novel microglial cell activator, which suppresses the activation of these cells, prevents production of reactive oxidation species, which are highly highly damaging. We reduce neuroexcitotoxicity in the central nervous system, and thus we reduce pro-inflammatory signaling cascades. LDN has shown to profoundly benefit conditions associated with elevated inflammatory markers, especially conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis. And papers have shown that in patients with elevated SED rates and CRP markers, which again are markers of chronic and active inflammation that LDN tends to benefit these patients better. The patients report greater reduction of pain and inflammation.
In conclusion, low-dose naltrexone is an important consideration for the reduction of chronic inflammation from autoimmune and musculoskeletal or neurological conditions. We must remember to treat the underlying comorbidities, especially gut infections, and optimize a patient's nutrition to maximize efficacy. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone, and uh, good morning to everyone that is watching online. Um, let me start off by saying, and I'd like to thank Linda Elsagood for all of our vast efforts with the LDN Research Trust, and this conference in particular, it really has been fantastic. I really do believe that the world is a better place because of your efforts. I'd also like to thank my wife, Dr. Christina Romero-Bosch, who continues to support me, my uh, indebtedness to you and my love for you knows no bounds. And in fact, we are basically on like a date night weekend because we're away from the kids, so we had to come to the LDN conference to do that. Uh, so it's been uh, fantastic. <laughs> right. So let's begin with a cursory review of autoimmunity. Um, of course, many of us here understand all of this, uh, but let's go through it as it specifically relates to thyroid. Thyroid autoimmunity begins with some form of environmental trigger. One good example is an antigen from food allergies, and we've been hearing a lot about that this weekend. An APC, or an antigen-presenting cell, presents the antigen to a CD4 cell. The cascade we see here is triggered. So classically, we believe Hashimoto's to be Th1 dominant. But this graphic, modified from an article published in 2002 in Nature Review's Immunology, this uh, proposes that the autoimmune hypo hypothyroidism, or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, results from both B cell and T cell activation, which could be both Th1 or Th2 dominant. So both mechanisms are generally occurring. I think that's important. However, they do propose for autoimmune hyperthyroidism or Graves' disease is largely B cell and Th2 dominant. And we also have to appreciate the classic uh, Th1 versus Th2 models being challenged. Uh, it's there. Other discovered classes, we've got a less known Th3. There's another one called Th17 with its own chemotactic components, which LDN has been proposed to influence and to modulate. So the excellent thing about LDN is its ability to influence both Th1 and Th2 dominance, or other immune classes due to overall immune modulation. So this would be particularly important in Hashimoto's, as it seems to be both Th1 and or Th2, or some other immune class known or unknown. So again, immune modulation is the key to be achieved through all these multiple therapeutic vectors. We've got four therapies here uh, to consider to create and reestablish immune modulation. Now, there are, of course, others, as we all know, but these tend to be the most direct routes, at least for us uh, at our clinic. So, of course, LDN. As I just stated, one of the great things about LDN to wield as a therapeutic tool is this ability to sort of modulate the immune system. It's clinically forgiving, and the patient benefits. So, also the use of thyroid hormone product that contains both T4 and active T3. Additionally, and my particular practice focus is comprehensive hormone replacement therapy that considers estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, insulin, growth hormone. And we know that estrogen, progesterone, and cortisol tend to increase Th1, where 
testosterone, DHA, androgens tend to influence and increase TH2. So the balance, of course, is important. The consideration of all these hormones comprehensively will provide optimal immune modulation. And finally, the gut. We've been hearing a lot about that this weekend. We know that the gut's associated with immunity and its dysfunctions related to opportunistic infections, food sensitivities, dysbiosis, autoimmunity in general. Okay, so we've been tracking observational internal data on LDN and thyroid antibodies for the past about two years, and the best we could in a very busy practice. So since Hashimoto's is far more common than Graves' disease, we placed our focus on Hashimoto's. So we presented a total of 53 patients. They're placed in two categories, LDN only and LDN with a gut repair treatment protocol. Now it's important to note, this is really important to note, that the LDN only group is also receiving comprehensive thyroid nutritional hormonal support. Please don't let that uh, make, make you think that it's just that. We deal with things very comprehensively in general. But what I'm trying to say is that there's a difference between the LDN only versus the people who are also on some kind of gut repair, a specific gut repair protocol that I'll explain in the next slide. So we simply calculated the average thyroperoxidase antibodies and the average thyroglobulin antibodies, and then we calculated the average values of each after a length of treatment. So you can see the average there. So we've got far more patients in our practice on LDN than this sample here but we only included patients who had at least one follow-up lab to show a calculable difference in their antibodies. So we excluded some out. Now, the LDN-only group of 39 patients with an average treatment time of about 13 months, they showed a very significant antibody drop, uh, particularly in anti-TPO, so, which is, of course, the most common autoantibody, but, of course, we always check both. So beginning average antibodies on gut repair patients, that was much higher the change was also less significant. This is consistent with the general observation that significant gut compromise is related to autoimmunity. And as we'll see later, this, that compliance to gut modifications is significant. Now, the patients who chose to do the gut protocol in general had the most obvious outright symptoms of gastrointestinal dist distress, you know, hence motivating them to want to do the testing and follow through with the diet and the supplement commitments. So again, compliance. So in fact, we can see that the decrease in thyroid antibodies in the LDN plus gut repair group was not as significant as the uh, LDN only group. Now this could be due to compliance and adherence to the gut treatment protocol and the very small sample size of only 14 patients versus the, the 39. So why did we do this? Why did we track this? What was the motivation? One, we wanna ensure that we're incorporating a treatment strategy that was indeed effective at lowering antibodies. We wanted to see. Two, there's, at least to my knowledge, there's little direct evidence and research about the use of LDN and its specific effects on thyroid antibodies, at least by what I could find. If I am wrong about that, I encourage someone to let me know uh, at the end of this presentation. And then three, because um, I'm a dork and I genuinely like to play this game and I like to crunch the numbers and, and see what we can find. So, look. We seek to add to the body of knowledge about LDN, however humble and modest uh, this observation and methods are, but it is our hope that other prescribers of LDN do the same as we have, or at least inspire the call to other researchers to provide in-depth analysis and results about LDN specific to thyroid autoimmunity.
So here's the gut repair protocol, a little bit of detail. So we start off with a serum analysis of IgG reactivity to 154 different foods. It's a standard industry test. And for those with high suspicion of wheat or and or gluten activity, we'll add a different test as well. And that'll include glutenin, gliadin, and what I think is very important, non-wheat protein fractions as well. All patients had, in our sample, had at least 11 plus foods that they were reactive to, um, and that could have been wheat, gluten, or the other foods. They were then instructed to follow a diet that, of course, removed these foods, and they have to do that for at least 90 days. So our gut repair protocol, what I'm talking about here, is just a 90-day protocol. It can, of course, go longer than that, but we start them off with a three-month process. During that 90-day restriction, they'd follow the supplement regimen designed to repair and restore gastrointestinal integrity and function. So you can see the gut cocktail here. This is a simple, relatively taste-neutral beverage. It includes glutamine, fructooligosaccharides, acacia senegal, N-acetyl-D-glucosamine, the classic herb slippery elm in a powder form, and good old aloe vera juice. So we, they can mix this in water or juice of their choice. It's consumed twice daily. We also used professional strength broad-spectrum probiotic. We start off with a loading phase of 300 billion times 10 days, and then we go to 100 billion daily for about two months after that, and then about uh, 30 billion as a maintenance after that. So finally, we, re we used a dual phase digestive enzyme formula that includes hydrochloric acid, pepsin, et cetera, as you can see here. So let's do a quick uh, couple case reviews here. So here's a great example of a patient from our sample who's prescribed both LDN and diagnosed with leaky gut placed on our gut protocol. He presented to me with a strong history of irritable bowel syndrome, diagnosed when he was very young. He goes through the normal testing, and he had several loose uh, bowel movements when he first presented, including uh, uncomplicated hemorrhoids with some occult blood. He was routinely screened by a gastrointestinal specialist. His thyroid antibodies uh, are elevated, even when he, and he also presented hypogonadal, and he was only 28. So aside from the gut repair protocol, he's prescribed natural desiccated thyroid and, of course, LDN of 4.5 milligrams. Now, he was really compliant for those first six months. Stools largely normalized, hemorrhoids improved. He got better. And you can see his antibodies really got uh, better as well. He lowered drastically. So because he improved and it was part of the typical 90-day protocol, he was less compliant. So a lot of times once patients get better, they start to slip a little bit, as we know. And you can see that his antibodies slipped, but he was still on the LDN. But his antibodies went back up a little bit. So this is an example of how important comprehensive care is when treating thyroid autoimmunity or any autoimmunity, that food sensitivities and gut permeability are not always fully corrected after 90 days. Sometimes we have to continue to go. It could be much longer. Now, to speak to his hypogonadism, I recently presented in London at the International Congress on Naturopathic Medicine, and my presentation was on the global decline of testosterone and sperm in men. Um, and... I presented research uh, regarding all of this and what I had kind of found. And it was only maybe about three weeks after that presentation that another large landmark study came out of Jerusalem um, that did really, in fact, confirm that sperm is lowering in men. So part of that presentation was the causal relationships for lowering testosterone and sperm and what the functional medicine practitioner can do to help. Now, there's all kinds of reasons for this decline, but we think of diet 
and toxin exposure, gut compromise, and maybe even autoimmune thyroid disease. And maybe that's relevant to this example. So in this patient, a change in diet, an improvement, all of this, it actually helped with his testosterone. And, oh, and uh, it's also important to mention that he was also, he and his wife were trying to get pregnant uh, for about a year before he came to see us, and uh, he, they got pregnant. So coincidence? I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Here's another example uh, from our sample. This was uh, an LDN-only group because she didn't do anything significant with her uh, diet. A 37-year-old female, high expression of autoimmunity. She had other things going on, vitiligo, vaginal lichen sclerosis, and we discovered the Hashimoto's. And interestingly, she um, had already known about that to some degree. They had seen serum uh, elevated antibodies, but her conventional doctor said, well, there's nothing really you should do about that. And I think we've seen some evidence here this weekend that it is important to uh, preemptively work with someone who has that, despite what they may or may not be presenting with clinically. So this patient also had low testosterone and suppressed estradiol production from uh, oral contraceptive use. Now, oral contraceptives suppress ovarian functions, just what they do. Um, it also can lead to gut dysbiosis, nutritional deficiencies, particularly magnesium. So I gave her low-dose estradiol, optimal testosterone, uh, using subcutaneous pellets, something we focus on, and a plan to slowly wean off of her oral contraceptives. So she was also placed, of course, on a nutritional regimen, uh, desiccated thyroid, and of course, LDN, 4.5 milligrams. So she returned, you can see it was pretty straightforward in a very relative short period of time, about five months, her antibodies uh, lower, her symptoms drastically improved, she had less headaches, it was another big concern when she first came in to see me. She's off the birth control pill, and we were able to just get her off the estrogen. She just didn't need the estradiol anymore, but she maintained the testosterone. She liked the libido from that, so we maintained that. So why did her antibodies lower? In this case, it could be several variables. Um, it could be the oral contraceptives, just getting off of that. It could be the use of the natural desiccated thyroid, the normalizing of her sex hormones, all of which have immune-modulating effects in and of themselves, or at least these could be obstacles to cure, something we say in naturopathic medicine. But of course, it could just be the LDN. So here we're at an LDN conference. We've gathered under the basic premise that we believe LDN is worth prescribing. I certainly do. But I'm seeing changes uh, with its use in my patients. I, I, but I'm not a fan of this statement, the science is settled. I think it makes us intellectually, I don't know, sluggish. So I think we should continue to look deeper for the sake of our patients. So final uh, case review. It's another example from our sample, uh, technically in the LDN only group, but did make specific diet changes, I'll explain here. 56-year-old menopausal female, a large percentage of our patients uh, would fall into this demographic. She's on desiccated thyroid, estradiol, testosterone, subcutaneous pellets with oral opposing progesterone. Her initial anti-TPO, you can see here at 2315. It rose up a little bit after that. At that point, she got a little more motivated to get on the LDN. Gave her that, um, and you can see that it started to, uh, to lower. Now, LDN, it presents, excuse me, uh, Hashimoto's presents with these flares. You can have up and down of the antibody response anyway. Um, but about six months later, on uh, July 8th, 2016, we discovered a mild insulin resistance. 
and suboptimal glucose, hemoglobin A1C, insulin, homocysteine levels all being suboptimal. At that point, I had given her 500 milligrams TID of metformin, a proprietary palladium alpha-lipoic acid uh, mineral complex that some of you may be familiar, hint, hint. Um, and those were in injection form. I reduced her net carbs to 125. That seems to be a very reasonable number, an effective number. And all this led, of course, to getting rid of a lot of her grain-based carbohydrates as well. So you can see in a mere four months after that, her anti-TPO antibodies dropped to only 74 and essentially normal. This was the lowest reading she had ever had. So was it the LDN by itself? Perhaps. I've observed that the LDN very often takes several months for full impact on thyroid antibodies to be realized, yet the idea that she avoided or at least limited at excessive carbohydrates, particularly grain-based carbohydrates, that could be part of it. Her treatment for the insulin resistance included the use of metformin and a low-carb diet. Maybe that's the reason. There is evidence that overproduction of insulin leads to B-cell stimulation and possibly potentiating the Th1 pathway. So ultimately, comprehensive strategies help the patient to realize optimal results. This should be the perspective of any functional medicine practitioner uh, who decides to use LDN. So finally, I believe it's important to approach thyroid management in this comprehensive fashion. Tole causum, or treat the cause, this is a, another tenant in naturopathic medicine that is known within the functional medicine world. I believe that the use of LDN helps us to treat that core cause that often is autoimmunity. Another saying in naturopathic medicine is heal the gut and the rest will follow. And this is a generalized idiom that so often is true, it's almost always an excellent place to start. So the endocrine system is one, if not the most vital system within the body. We have hormonal influences and production within the womb before we ever develop a nervous system. So dare to balance the endocrine system and you help many things with your patients, including thyroid autoimmunity. And a healthy immune system are also key to managing thyroid disease. LDN proves to be one of the most effective tools in doing this, particularly when it comes to lowering an antibody response, I believe. And finally, one of the most overlooked possibilities in thyroid hormone diagnosis and management is the clinical measurement of metabolic rate. It's something that we look at very, uh, I believe, somewhat uniquely and certainly, of course, we look at mitochondrial function. So thyroid hormone influences mitochondrial function second to none. So if we can look at things from that perspective and correct that, even be above and beyond the conventional perspective of serum analysis, then the patient realizes optimal outcomes. The patient actually gets well. So I truly look forward to your feedback and input on this presentation. I hope that it helps to lessen Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.